Good afternoon. The next case is State v. Campbell, and we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. I am Olivia Warren, and I represent Mr. Campbell. I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. As Justice White set out in Swain v. Alabama nearly 60 years ago, the presumption in any particular case must be that the prosecutor is using the state's challenges to obtain a fair and impartial jury to try the case before the court. Nothing about that presumption has changed, and in fact, trial counsel in this case acted entirely consistently with that presumption and with North Carolina's law when she did not seek recordation of jury selection at trial. At some point, however, that presumption of regularity was overcome, and trial counsel made a Batson objection on the record. I think it's important to look very closely at the 12 pages of transcript that we do have regarding this and the words that each counsel used. In trial counsel's and defense counsel's initial statement regarding the uh, challenge that she was making, she said that it's the defense position that the state in jury selection has tried extremely hard for every African-American to excuse them for cause. This, in fact, the last two alternate jurors that were excused showed no leaning one way or the other or indicated that they would not be able to hear the evidence, apply the law, and render a verdict. And she made the challenge after the state used three out of four peremptory strikes to challenge black jurors. That's on page 70 of the transcript. The state responded to that prima facie uh, representation. It did not dispute uh, anything that defense counsel put on the record. Instead, it simply said that as to the first 12 jurors, the strike rate was only 50-50, that it had used one peremptory strike on a white juror and one peremptory strike on a black juror. Defense counsel again emphasized a repeated campaign to excuse all of the black jurors, in this case, either through cause or through peremptory strikes. At that point, the trial, count, uh, the trial court denied the Batson challenge at the prima facie step, at step one. It said that uh, even though that burden is low, it had not been met here. It then re-entered that ruling, and at some point it asked the state to put its reasons on the record. Now, the state correctly informed uh, the trial court of the applicable law and said that if it proceeded to explain its reasoning, we would be in Batson step two. The trial court said, thank you. I, again, am ruling only on step one. After a break, the trial court came back and said, I am still only ruling on step one. It re-entered the step one ruling and said, nevertheless, for appellate purposes, I would like you to put the reasons on the record. And at that point, the state did. After the state gave its reasoning, the court again re-entered its step one ruling and ultimately reduced that ruling to writing several days later. It gave no reasons that undermined the unrebutted representations of defense counsel that the state had attempted to remove all of the black jurors in this case and that there was a strike rate of three out of four. That is clear error on this record and on our law. It is the duty of the trial court to make findings of fact at each 
stage of Batson that it reaches. That is clear in our case law. I think the Court of Appeals opinion below relied on a line of cases going back all the way to Cofield in 1998. But it's also clear by the controlling precedent of the United States Supreme Court. Very recently, Justice Kavanaugh in Flowers said that that case raised three important questions about Batson. And one of those questions was who enforces Batson? In answering that, Justice Kavanaugh said, and this is at page 2243 of Flowers, as the Batson court itself recognized, the job of enforcing Batson rests first and foremost with trial judges. America's trial judges operate at the front lines of American justice. In criminal trials, trial judges possess the primary responsibility to enforce Batson and prevent racial discrimination from seeping into the jury selection process. Here, the trial court failed that duty. It did not make any findings of fact or even make any statements in the record or provide any evidence to support its bare legal conclusion that defense counsel failed to meet the low threshold of a step one Batson showing in this case. This record is enough to demonstrate that clear error. Counsel, to your right. <laughs> Thank you, Justice okay. Allen. Sure. Um, how important is it at, for purposes of analyzing the <clears throat> prima facie step, step one, that we don't have in the record um, uh, the, accept the state's acceptance rate of black jurors or the, the racial composition of the jury? I think that in some cases that can be helpful, but it has never been found to be dispositive. Batson and its progeny has outlined only three elements for establishing a prima facie case. Those are simply a timely objection, identification of the cognizable group, and facts sufficient to raise an inference of discrimination. Here, we have facts sufficient to raise an inference of discrimination. They are either unrebutted or agreed on by the state and the trial court. And there is no countervailing evidence that the state was incentivized to offer and could have, and that the trial court itself might have found. In other cases, going back uh, to Hoffman and coming all the way through to Hobbs and Bennett, we see as the trial court is making its step one ruling, it often has a conversation with counsel, asking clarifying questions back and forth, and making some determinations regarding those elements that Your Honor is asking about on its own. Here it failed to do that, but that does not mean that there is sufficient evidence to support its ruling on this record. And this record alone is enough to demonstrate the very low threshold, which is far below a preponderance at step one. Now, we know that three out of four of the jurors that uh, the state exercised peremptory strikes against were black. Um, and that is very strong evidence. We also know that the juror uh, that defense counsel described as being struck for cause, Ms. Davis, the state agrees that she was also black. There is no other evidence of any black jurors on this record. Um, those numbers are incredibly compelling and they demonstrate a strong pattern of repeated use of peremptory challenges. They also demonstrate a disproportionate use 
of peremptory challenges. Council, I, I apologize. In, in looking at the dissent um, in this case, uh, the dissenting judge says, I, I would still not go so far on this record as to hold defendant met his burden to establish a prima facie case for Batson violation. What is the scope of our review given the uh, language in the dissent? Uh, Your Honor, your review is not limited by the language in the dissent, uh, but I do believe that on this record alone, uh, this is sufficient and, and demonstrates clear error. If you disagree with me, I agree that a remand on step one is appropriate, as Judge Hampson suggests. Well, did, did you file a PDR? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Thank you. This record is enough based on this court's progeny. We know from Barden that numbers alone are not necessarily dispositive, but they can be strongly supportive. And indeed, in, most recently in Bennett, this court rejected the state's reliance on bright line numbers analysis in using the acceptance rate to rebut a prima facie showing. Here, the numbers are even stronger than they are in Barden. And Barden immediately after the line that says numbers are not always necessarily <coughs> dispositive, that court cautions that we should not split hairs over numbers. It says, this is on page 344, we are aware that we risk splitting hairs unduly if we attempt to distinguish between the 37.5% acceptance rate of prospective minority jurors in Gregory and the 28.6% rate here. However, we have also held that step one of the Batson analysis is not intended to be a high hurdle. So again, the numbers are not always dispositive, but here they are very strong. This case is different from many of the other cases that you have heard today. The issue is small. The record is small. The appropriate relief is small. This case should be remanded for a step one hearing. Counsel, I, I think I heard you say that you had filed a PDR. What additional issues did you seek in a petition for discretionary review? I believe, uh, Your Honor, that the PDR, because there was a concurrence, the dissent is a concurrence in part, that the PDR was ensuring that the issue was appropriately preserved. It is just a one-issue PDR regarding the Batson determination. And I'm, I can pull up that language if Your Honor would like. And did, did we allow that? Again, Your Honor, I'm happy to review the docket. I was appointed after briefing was completed on this. The other important evidence on this record, and it is on this record relevant to this court's step one analysis, is the prosecutor's statements on the record about why he chose to strike uh, Ms. Holden. And here, um, I think, again, it's important to look at the actual text. He said first that he was striking her because of her familiarity with several of the witnesses. Those witnesses were, in fact, uh, connected to the victims in this case. But then he said that regarding her organization, while she was a college student with her professor, and I'm quoting, she also was indicating that she was a participant, if not an organizer, for Black Lives Matter at her current college with her professor. And whether or not that would have any implied unstated issues that may arise due to either law enforcement, the state, 
or other concerns we may have. Now, the reason that that language is significant in this court's step one analysis is because here the trial court re-entered orally its prima facie ruling after hearing that information. It is fairly considered as part of the totality of the circumstances before the trial court at the time of its ruling. And the trial court did not allow for any sir rebuttal about the extent to which that might be protectual. It did not proceed to a step two and a three ruling, which again would be appropriate on remand. But what we have in that language alone is not any specific details of something that a juror said about her participation or organization. It is instead implied unstated issues that may arise or other concerns we may have. That level of speculation is exactly the kind of groupthink and the stereotyping that Batson says is impermissible. And that is why we need a remand for a proper hearing as to what, if any, inferences the state was making should the court proceed to step two on this case. I think that, again, because this case is small, it is 12 pages of record, it is a step one case, I believe a step one remand is appropriate. I would rest at this point if there are not additional questions. I do just have one additional question, and that relates to the to the earlier answer about the significance of not a fuller de developed record on you know how many African Americans sat on the jury, and and is, isn't it true that the um, federal precedents say that um, ultimately excluding just one juror because of their race or because of their gender, but excluding just one juror can violate Batson. It's the, the question is not only um, going to the issue of whether or not the defendant has a representative jury, but whether the, the individual who comes to court and says, I want, I'm, I'm replying to my jury summons, I'm here to serve, um, whether that person is experiencing discrimination on the basis of race. And so can you um, enlighten us on whether that fuller record um, in, in light of the Supreme Court precedent that even just discriminating against one potential juror violates Batson? What Certainly, Your Honor, and I would make three points regarding that. The first is that uh, affirming on this record, I think, would impermissibly elevate the, the clear statements of the United States Supreme Court in terms of the sufficiency at step one. To the extent that these additional factors that our courts have developed through uh, quick, and they actually go back further than that, but have certainly been developed, uh, there is no requirement that evidence as to each and every one of them be present or be put into the record. In fact, requiring something like that would risk undermining the very point of Batson itself, uh, which is to not hold up jury selection, to not create many evidentiary trials. All that defense counsel must do is simply put into the record enough evidence that they feel meets the low prima facie burden. Second, uh, I think that it is important to remember that Batson is not about finding actual racial discrimination. It is about the level of risk that we tolerate. I think this court promoted very sage language in uh, its most recent opinion in Clegg explaining that it is, it is not a stain on a particular litigant or, or uh, any particular trial. 
It is about the integrity of our judicial system and the level of risk that we are willing to tolerate. Third and finally, to Justice Earl's question, I would add that in addition to the rights of every party that comes before our trial courts here in North Carolina, not only do jurors have rights not to be discriminated against, as we understand Batson to mean, but North Carolina does have an additional constitutional provision, Article 1, Section 26, which guarantees those rights as well. If there are no further questions, I would reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Michael Henry, and I'm an Assistant Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice. I wrote the State's brief in this matter and will be arguing on behalf of the State today. Um, the facts are all laid out in the brief, in short and relevant for our purposes here. Uh, suffice to say that uh, in April 2015, defendant forced his way into the home of his former girlfriend in the middle of the night, Portia James, fatally shot the man there, pistol whipped Portia uh, in the presence of her four-year-old child, took the child with him eventually dropped her off with Portia's cousin, Kizzy Miller, in Tabor City, North Carolina, while Kizzy's daughter, Olivia, came to support Portia in the aftermath of the shooting and eventually drove Portia to pick up her child. Um, in appealing the resulting conviction for first-degree <coughs> murder, defendant does not and has never suggested any error with his conviction other than the denial of his Batson objection during jury selection in 2017, uh, which ultimately brings us here today. Um, Given the expanse of the arguments and the counterarguments and the alternative arguments, uh, I want to largely focus today on what I believe to be the three or maybe really four key facts that govern resolution of this case. And by govern, I mean nearly all of defendants' arguments in one fashion or another, including the ones we just heard, come back to and ultimately run into the teeth of these facts. They are, as was discussed uh, by defense counsel, the record contains almost none of the evidence that we typically see considered on appeal when evaluating a Batson ruling. Um, the trial court record, however, does reflect wholly acceptable and typical reasons for exercising each of the peremptory challenges the state exercised in this case. It's two. Three, all of the relevant burdens are on defendant here at trial. That includes the burden to identify the facts and circumstances that give rise to an inference of discriminatory purpose, as well as the burden to compile an adequate record. And on appeal, this burden uh, is to demonstrate that the record, from that record, that the trial court clearly erred. And then fourth, a sort of legal fact of sorts, is that because an evaluation of the prosecutor's state of mind is peculiarly within the trial judge's province, its findings are given great deference on appeal. Important here, that means, as this court said in Williams and Hoffman and Bennett and Braxton, uh, that a reviewing court is not entitled to choose between two permissible views of the evidence when the trial court has also chosen one. So, for example, any argument that the trial court should have found a prima facie case runs into the wholly adequate basis in the record uh, for, the for, the prima, uh, for the peremptory challenges. So, uh, counsel, let me just stop you there because um, I, I do understand the argument here that um, we're, we're looking holistically at what was before the trial court to determine whether there was enough um, evidence to create a, a, an inference. The language is ev evidence sufficient to create an inference that there might be racial discrimination. So, so isn't whether the reason was 
acceptable, i.e., I think you mean by that a race neutral, uh, whether that race neutral reason was a pretext and not the real reason, um, aren't those questions that we reach at the third stage? And at the first stage, we're just asking the question, is there enough evidence here to raise an inference of racial discrimination? Whether the reasons are acceptable, whether they're pre, whether the reasons are race neutral, whether they are a pretext, uh, what the totality ultimately shows about whether there is discrimination, that's stage three, isn't it? Right. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. So th this case has, and, and you know, as I indicated here in this opener, the, 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 the briefing contains a variety of alternative arguments. So it, it, it kind of depends on, you know, what argument we're on that different, different uh, structures of the argument will come into play. At the prima facie stage, the issue is whether or not the, uh, the, the, uh, the opponent of the strike has pointed to, has satisfied their burden of production to point to evidence sufficient to give rise to an inference of discriminatory purpose. Here, we don't have that. We have a statements of a, uh, we have defense counsel statements that are sort of speculate about the prosecutor's state of mind, that the prosecutor's trying extremely hard and all this other, um, that sort of phrasing. And we have, we really just have numbers. We have three out of four of the trial court, of the, of the state's peremptory challenges. That's really what we have. And then the process, and then the defense counsel's opinion about what the state must have intended or must be meaning. That's really what we have. And that, given the, in the context, as, as defense counsel just noted, numbers are, can be relevant. They can be salient to that kind of analysis. But we need the context that they're in. They're not dispositive. And they're not dispositive either way is, is, is the point. Particularly here where, to go to Justice Allen's earlier question, where we don't have any idea what the numbers are in the, either the entire jury pool or the 12 that were called to the box or, or, or so on. So whether or not facts, the totality of the, whether or not the totality of the circumstances is sufficient to give rise to an inference of discriminatory purpose is something that's going to be evaluated within, again, the totality of the circumstances as identified by the defendant to satisfy their burden of production. Here the defendant has produced almost nothing to that effect and is now here on appeal saying, well, because there's nothing, we need to remand and go back and get findings so that uh, all the things that I didn't argue, we can make findings about the things that I didn't argue were significant. Well, let me just ask you this. So um, you're suggesting that because three of the four states' peremptory challenges were against um, African-American prospective jurors, that's not enough to create an inference. What would it take um, in the state's view, to create an inference of um, that, that the, the, the low bar that mm -hmm. creates an inference that then takes us to stage two? Well, all right, so let me answer that in, in, in two phrases. I do think, one of the, because we are at a loss here for a, a voir dire transcript, we don't have anything. But when we look at, I don't precisely agree with defense counsel's uh, take on the idea that we don't look at all on the state's reasons. We don't look at the state's reasons on a prima facie case. That's something that uh, this court held, for example, specifically, and I think it's Williams. Um, but the, they're not reasons as reasons, but they are recitations, to the extent they're recitations of facts that would have been apparent to the trial court at the time the prima facie ruling was made. That's something that becomes uh, uh, a, a, a valuable, I think, a summary, for example. It's a, it's a way to summarize 
the, the, the material before the trial court. So we don't have a lot here. In terms of what would it take to, to create a prima facie inference, um, I think you could do it with three out of four peremptory challenges. But you would need to have something else that indicates that that is somehow improper. Here we have reasons for excluding these jurors, all four of the jurors, that, including the white juror that was excluded uh, through the state's peremptory challenges. 100% of those jurors knew witnesses. That is, which, which actually coordinates with the defense counsel's statement at trial that, you know, the defense counsel or uh, the prosecutor was trying extremely hard to excuse them. Yeah, that's not very surprising. They know witnesses. And the prosecutor was trying to excuse them for cause. That's, which is what the defense counsel's whole motion was. So I think when you, and that would have been apparent to the trial court. That's one of those things that's not viewing it as, a, as the state's reason and part of a step two Batson analysis, but it's a recitation of the facts that are apparent to the trial court as part of the totality of the circumstances. They're not part of the facts that the defendant identified in satisfying the burden of production, but it is something that we know the trial court, or we have reason to believe, that the trial court saw. That sort of uh, addresses that. Um, whether the trial court clearly erred in failing to find a prima facie case, um, as we've noted, the defendant had the burden of production. To, 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 to create a prima facie case, you have the burden of production, just like any objection, to point to facts and circumstances, particularly here we have a totality of the circumstances case, that give rise to an inference of discriminatory purpose and support the defendant identified only the four items we talked about, which is that there were four peremptory challenges, uh, the defendant claimed the state tried extremely hard to excuse some of the jurors for cause, claimed the last two alternates had no leaning one way or the other, and claimed that one African-American who had been excused for cause had been willing to serve. Um, we can look at some of the state's explanation to infer facts um, that would have been apparent to the trial court there, namely that all of them, uh, all of these potential jurors knew witnesses. Um, and the trial court found that that collection of facts did not rise to the very low hurdle showing a prima facie case and deny defendant's objection. Defendant talks about findings. This court has been clear in Williams and Quick and other cases that the only, because it is a burden of production, the only finding that is required at the prima facie stage, and this is what the Court of Appeals held as well, is whether or not the defendant has pointed to facts and circumstances giving rise to a, a prima facie inference of um, discrimination. The, the, the trial court at that stage doesn't make findings resolving material conflicts or, or disputed evidence or any of that uh, material. That's something that happens at the later stage, which coordinates with Supreme Court precedent about the idea of these are not, bats and objections are intended to sort of quickly resolve these kind of jury disputes and not turn into mini trials as we go. Um, <clears throat> so the trial court got the right answer there merely exercising peremptory challenges against a member of a minority group without more than sufficient to establish a prima facie case. Um, and we remember those key facts that we started with. The record reflects proper reasons for the PCs. The trial court's determination of the prosecutor's intention is entitled to great deference. This court cannot substitute its preference for another view of the evidence. And defendant, not the state, not the trial court, has the burden to present an adequate record and show clear error. Uh, clear error is, not, error is not presumed, nor is error uh, inferred um, simply because the record isn't robust enough to show something's wrong. C counsel, I have a question yes, for you. Um, so 
if I understood you correctly, you, you said that the, the the reasons that the state stated at the direction of the trial court that we can look at those as uh, in, in effect <clears throat> summaries of uh, what was apparent to the trial court when it made its prima facie ruling. Is that is that yes, right? No, that, that, that's I'm inferring that from the case law. The, 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 the case law generally looks at voir dire transcripts and sort of what people say and builds that up. Okay, so so here though, um, we don't have the record of the actual Correct. responses. So how is it there? Is it then proper for us to? Uh, are you asking us to infer that that the reasons stated by the state um, are accurate without a record to look at? The same would be true of uh, I. <clears throat> The, this court, for example, um, recently approves of identifying jurors' uh, races by having sort of agreement or stipulation among the parties. Um, so I think there's an element of, uh, to the extent, observable facts. So in other words, this is different than defendant's initial objection where the trial court is trying extremely hard to excuse African Americans, for example. That's a, that's a speculation about another person's state of mind. That's not the same thing as opposed to when the trial court says something like, Miss Holden said she knew, she was familiar with Portia and she went to school with Olivia. And where nobody says otherwise, I think that's indicative that that was something that would have been apparent to the trial court. I mean, even defense counsel didn't stand up and disagree with that. Trial court didn't disagree with it. Um, or alternatively, we can simply say, well, sauce for the goose and sauce for the gander, we don't have a transcript of Wadir, and we are not going to credit either the state's recitation of observable facts that happened uh, at the trial court or the defendant's observation of any observable facts that, that they pointed to, in which case we just have nothing. And, and again, the defendant has the burden to produce the record, compile the record, has the burden to put the basis of their objection on the record, and has the burden to show clear error on appeal. So in that circumstance, the ruling will be affirmed. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> um, going to one of the questions, I, I think this ties both to questions from Justice Allen and Justice Earls. Um, this idea that we really have such a thin record, as, as defense counsel notes, it's this remarkably thin record. It really is just a couple of pages. This is all we have of everything that happened here. Um, we really have no insight as to overall numbers of eligible or accepted jurors of any racial group at any stage of the selection process nor in the lines of questioning the prosecutor could pursue or the tone or content of the answers provided. Um, I think this gets to Justice Earl's question about, well, at what point could three out of four be enough? And the answer is, well, if we had some of this and it showed a problem, it could be enough. I think one of the most illustrative cases of that that I've seen uh, uh, recently was provided by defense counsel earlier this week and people be Silas. Um, it has echoes of, of this case with the reference to Black Lives Matter and, and, and so on. Um, but one of the things that's most remarkable about it is that if you read people besides the California case, it's not binding on this court. But one of the things that is remarkable about it is how big of a case it is. It's very thick. And that's because there's a big record and the court recites a lot. And you, you have the voir dire transcript that had the voir dire transcript. It had records of prior uh, uh, instances and, and concerns with uh, this prosecutor. It included the prosecutor's uh, voir dire reflected this prosecutor sort of grilling these jurors, disagreeing with these jurors, becoming combative with these jurors as they 
discussed, you know, what, what they, how they viewed Black Lives Matter versus how the prosecutor viewed them. And then when the prosecutor was asked to justify the peremptory excusals, she misrepresented the, what, everything that the jurors said. And, that, and the California Court of Appeals unsurprisingly said, that, that doesn't work. You can't say that that's not a prima facie case. Um, that's exactly the point. And, that, and that's exactly what the, what the state is going to hear. None of that is in the record. We have no idea how any of that worked. We don't know hardly anything that was said other than just, as Your Honor noted, just summations. Um, and that burden is on the defendant to compile an adequate record, not just with bats and objections, but with anything. We don't presume error merely because we don't have a record upon which to uh, uh, sort of put ourselves in the shoes of the trial court. <clears throat> All right. Um, one thing that defense counsel brought up that I, I do want to touch on, and then, uh, barring any questions, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll sit down. Um, implied and unstated. That's, that's a line um, from the prosecutor's explanations. I don't think there could have been any other line, really. Um, if we read the citation, this is on page 79 to 80 of the transcript. <coughs> so the prosecutor had just explained that Ms. Holden, just like every other uh, uh, juror who had been excluded or had been peremptorily challenged, was familiar with witnesses. Ms. Holden, the most of any. Uh, there were three witnesses that she was familiar with. Um, the, and then the prosecutor explained that and then said, an additional reason for the peremptory strike against Ms. Holden was the fact that she was describing her political science background and her nature as a student. And she was also indicating that she was a participant, if not an organizer, for Black Lives Matter at her current college with her professor, whether or not that would have any implied or unstated issues that may arise. I don't read that in the nefarious way that uh, uh, the defense would like us to read it. I think if potential bias, if potential bias is unquestionably a valid reason, uh, potential bias against law enforcement of the state is unquestionably a valid reason to exercise a peremptory challenge. If it had been express or overt, I would expect that the prosecutor's motions to excuse her for cause would have been granted. That's why the prosecutor, well, it is, it's the only reflection on the, on the record as to why the prosecutor would have been seeking to get her excused. We don't know how she described uh, the political science uh, advocacy. We don't know how she described her student work, her collegiate efforts. We don't know how she described what she does with the professor. We don't know what she described about how the professor worked. We don't know any of that. But I think topically, any of that could have given rise to an inference that she may be predisposed to have a bias against the state or a bias against law enforcement. If it had been express or overt, she would have been excused for cause, which makes perfect sense. Um, so uh, I don't see anything in that to suggest that um, the reason for the excusal was either that she was African-American or the particular organization. I think you could have you could switch the National Rifle Association or something for the same thing, and you would have the same explanation. Yeah, the concern is potential bias, um, which could have come up, or we would assume would have been inferable from the way she described uh, her interactions, uh, uh, political science advocacy, and so on. But again, we don't have the record. We don't have the wider transcript because it was excluded from recordation. Um, um,
Remanding for additional findings on the prima facie case, uh, this court uh, held in Waring and Williams, I think as I started off, that, um, that uh, specifically rejected that argument in Williams, in fact. Um, the, the failure to point to circumstances giving rise to a prima facie case is the only finding that's required at the prima facie step. Uh, the, um, in this case, that's the finding the trial court made. The record contains uh, uh, absolutely reasonable reasons why the trial why the, the, the trial court would have made that decision. Um, and any gaps in the evidence, such as those identified by the dissent, um, are something that was on the defendant to fix. Um, and just, I mean, that's the kind of legal structure of it, but remanding for a totality of the circumstances findings, just practically speaking, on matters the defendant never thought to argue uh, or uh, so the trial court could explain why it did not find circumstances giving rise to a prima facie case is really imposing upon the trial court a duty to prepare the record for a defendant uh, uh, to pursue this on appeal. Surely it is not too much to expect that a proponent of a Batson objection or any objection will sufficiently state the grounds for their objection to suffice for appellate review. And in fact, we actually have no reason to think that's not what happened here. Defendant may just not have had anything else to argue, and that's why the record is as narrow as it is. Um, all right. Um, so, simply put, the record is perfectly compatible with the trial court having observed Wadir, readily understanding why the prosecutor would have race-neutral misgivings about Ms. Holden's fitness for a juror and properly finding the defendant failed to satisfy his burden of production by pointing to circumstances giving rise to a prima facie case of discrimination. Barring any further questions, the state asks that the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals be affirmed. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal? Yes. The state would like to have it both ways here. They say that we can't consider the reasons that the prosecutor articulated on the record prior to the trial court re-entering its prima facie ruling as part of the prima facie ruling. But then they say that nevertheless, this court can use those reasons to bolster the trial court's bare order. That cannot be. Uh, either these reasons are a part of the step one consideration and they should be appropriately considered. I think that if the court decides that, these reasons make clear that race was on the prosecutor's mind. I agree with the state. You could insert the NRA into the prosecutor's statement. You could insert the Daughters of the American Revolution. You could insert any number of organizations because the statement is so generic, but the state didn't say those. The state said Black Lives Matter, and that organization has a racially disproportionate membership and support. Thus, we know from this record that race was on the mind, and that is supportive of the totality of the circumstances at step one. Every court that has considered Black Lives Matter in jury selection has found that it supports an inference of impermissible dis discrimination. It has not found it dispositive, but courts have found in Gresham that it supports an inference and the burden at step one, and in Cooper and in Silas at step three as part of the consideration there. I want to be very clear that I believe this record demonstrates clear error even without consideration of the additional statements made by the state. 
but you cannot use those additional statements if, if you don't consider them as part of the step one. The additional record after the trial court made its ruling cannot be used to bolster or absolve the trial court of its duty here. This record strongly suggests that the only black jurors of the 21 that were questioned were removed, one for cause and three using peremptory strikes. The state even, after this ruling is over, puts in additional information citing white jurors. The trial court, in, fine, in sufficiently supporting its order, could have made findings. It could have simply said, I'm looking around and I see that the majority of jurors seated in the box are black. I believe that the majority of jurors in this room are black. And thus, I see no prima facie case, even despite this very compelling numeric evidence. But the trial court didn't do that. The state did not do that. And the defense counsel put in the evidence it felt was sufficient to meet the very low threshold. This ruling has no support in the record, and it should be remanded for the trial court to either explain its ruling or make additional findings of fact at the step one inquiry. Batson does not require a quantum of evidence that defense counsel or any party must present at step one. That is a very low burden. And changing the amount of evidence or the specific kinds of evidence that need to be presented would contravene Batson and its progeny. This case is about ensuring that our trial courts get Batson right. It is small. It is a small record, and it is a small remand. But it is nevertheless important because trial courts have the duty to put the record, the reasons for their ruling in the record. This does not impose a burden on the trial court. I am not advocating that the trial court conduct extensive weighing or anything like that. It simply must put sufficient information and factual findings in the record to support its conclusion. We hold that not just in Batson, but in every and any ruling that a trial court makes. And Justice Kavanaugh has reminded us, as, this, as the United States Supreme Court did repeatedly over the last 30 years, that the records must be supported. This court found an identical error in Hobbs in 2020, where the step three ruling was not supported by the record. Here, the step one ruling is not supported by the record. And this case cries out for remand on step one. Batson is our best, if imperfect, attempt at drawing a line in the sand, establishing the level of risk that we deem acceptable or unacceptable. Here, where there is unrebutted testimony from defense counsel that the state was trying to remove all black jurors in this case, that one was removed from cause, and that the state used three of its four strikes, uh, of its four peremptory strikes against black jurors in what is a majority white county. This ruling cannot stand, and it must be remanded. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, both counsel. Mr. Clark.